Hello and welcome to Star Trek Sundays. Today we're going to be discussing all things humor in What's So Funny, Episode 13. The discussions during the watch party yesterday were excellent, so I'm really looking forward to finding out what tickles everyone today. If you're new here, I'm Victoria and with me is my co-host T. Star Trek Sundays is a podcast through which we and our guest crew examine some of the philosophical themes presented in Star Trek every Sunday at 10 a.m. PST on Clubhouse. At the top of the room, we've pinned our website, StarTrekSundays.com. On the website, you'll find my captain's log, a brief history of the show each week, as well as guest blogs and our upcoming missions, which list future topics and the episodes covering the topics. Our YouTube channel and other social media channels are linked at the top of the website should you want to visit or listen to some of the previous shows. And you can now find Star Trek Sundays on Pandora, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and from anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please consider subscribing to our YouTube channel. It helps us reach others who might enjoy the show. Thank you, T, for curating this week's watch list. The watch party on Discord yesterday was a lot of fun. And the discussions between the shows that we have here on Clubhouse uh, helped me form some of my thoughts on today's topic. But before we get into the questions, please tell us what inspired the title of the room and the topic and how you chose this watch list. Well, thank you, Victoria. I would love to. The topic of what's so funny was inspired by you. The serious talk, you said the serious topics are great, but what if we did something less serious, even humorous? And I said, yeah, that's a great idea. And immediately three examples of Star Trek tackling the subject of humor came to mind. Now in my mind, these are anomalies within the series. Star Trek is rarely laugh out loud funny, usually being rather conservative with comedic relief. There's just no room for funny when the Enterprise is being taken over by an alien invasion. And yet, when the show writers want to take on the subject, they do an absolutely brilliant job. So I'm expecting to have a big laugh today as we ask the question, what's so funny? Uh, thank you for that. Um, I'm glad you said brilliant because I, I think I actually have that in my notes. Um, I do think that they strike a balance. So let's just dive in and start with the movie Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Can you provide a summary of the movie to remind those who didn't get a chance to review it, what it was about? And then I have a couple of questions for you. Yeah, interestingly enough, this is the second uh, movie I ever saw in theaters as a kid. Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. It's the fourth film from the original series. The release date is the 26th of November, 1986. So I was nine at the time. So in this episode, Kirk and the stranded crew of the Enterprise following the events of Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, attempt to head home in their stolen Klingon warbird, but encounter a probe that's destroying the Earth when they get there. The crew has to travel back in time to save the whales from extinction. So I chose this episode because once they reach San Francisco in 1985, the comedic situations never seem to stop. Up until that point, they're portrayed as eminently capable Starfleet officers, and suddenly they turn into bumbling fools, and it's totally believable, too. 
It's not a stretch at all that despite being from Earth, they are completely out of their element and all attempts to fit in just cause so much humor that I laugh out loud the entire time. And it clearly wasn't accidental either. The Looney Tunes orchestral romp to accompany the antics was present in every wacky chase scene. The dialogue, even from Shatner, was believable. And as much as I'm not a Shatner fan, he was absolutely great in this, avoiding all of his speech follies and giving a very compelling performance. Honestly, I could talk all day about the funny scenes, one-liners, and dialogue gags, but I'll just leave it at the hell this movie is good. <laughs> the hell. Uh, I, <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm so happy we're doing this. Um, but I didn't know that you weren't a Shatner fan, by the way. So that's, that's interesting. It's, it's really, it, yeah. I, I don't like his, his, his demeanor in the original series. I think it's very robotic and, and without feeling. And yet in this movie, he's somehow transformed. He's just, he, he has, he's arguing with Spock over feelings. He's, he's actually seeming to care about, you know, this girl and whales and, and wanting to genuinely work with her and being honest about it. He wasn't being, you know, a sleazeball and trying to get into her pants or anything he was just actually sort of. on a mission well sort of but i mean a little bit but <laughs> yeah. but but he was about to leave her behind yeah yeah she, yeah that was not what he was here for he was here to save the whales and it worked that chemistry worked i thought yeah i <laughs> I agree. Um, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but perhaps it's when Shatner is allowed to be Kirk and be smiley Kirk, because uh, there were some scenes that we'll get to in the triple episode that I thought he was just brilliant in. So, um, but I get what you're saying, that sort of very stereotypical Kirk that comedians often mimic, right? So so anyway, with, with uh, Star Trek for the voyage home i have a confession this isn't going to surprise anybody who's been listening for the last 12 weeks this is the first time i saw this movie <laughs> and i watched it on friday on my own and then again with the watch party on saturday and i enjoyed both viewings a lot it's cute and uh, a bit dated perhaps but that added to the charm for me there were some good one-liners, and I intend to adopt the not exactly working on all thrusters into my vocabulary going forward. And and I think I've got to add that uh, the hell thing in. And of course, the few messages to us about humanity currently. And sadly, these messages are still relevant today. And there were a few lines like, it's an extremely primitive and paranoid culture, and we're still that in many ways. But let's leave all of that for now and look at uh, what's so funny about Star Trek for The Voyage Home. For me, I think it was really that the comedy was unexpected. We have this rather serious mission to save the planet and the tension of the risks of going back in time, time travel again, and having the crew being exposed 
as, you know, from the future on Earth. And it sets us up for expectations about the story. So when the storyline takes a turn for the less serious in some scenes, we're tickled, or at least I was. And we're relieved in some way, too, I guess, from the tension. Uh, throughout the movie, we have our heroes wearing relatively ridiculous outfits, all while behaving seriously, and vice versa, I guess. It's really rather classic humor in my mind. And so, as you said, the crew of the Enterprise was, hilariously, completely out of their element, and it made for really interesting situations and interactions. So my question to you, T, and to everybody else we're going to be inviting up, has there ever been a time when stepping out of your element caused you to run around acting <laughs> seemingly crazy to hilarious results? Yeah, um, I made a programmer by trade i sit behind a desk and uh one time my friend invited me to go play paintball and i've seen these guys you know with the play their paintball and they're running around they, they put a you know what's, what's called a marker in my hand which is a you know a thing that you put the paintballs into and attach a co2 and it's got a barrel and an and a and a uh, bolt and it fires these things at 60 70 80 feet per second and oh man what running around the paintball field i, I literally felt like uh an idiot like normally i'm i'm fairly adept at you know my element which is programming so i'm behind a keyboard i'm like sure i can i can do this and then i do and when they stuck me out there, I just felt like, looking back on it, it was truly hilarious because I was running around trying to hide behind, you know, bushes and trees and obviously failing at it and trying to shoot things and ended up, you know, shooting myself in the foot, I think, one time. Um, and then another time I, I shot the instructor in the back of the head uh, before the game started and it was it was just a calamity of errors and bottom line don't ever put me in a battle situation with a gun because it would be uh, ridiculous and hilarious all at the same time <laughs> uh, that's great so uh no programmers and uh paintball like no starfleet and money which is sort of a recurring comedy of errors well that that's great. My other question, what, it, this next one isn't about the movie so much as what makes you laugh and what sort of humor gets to you. So maybe while we invite everybody up, you can let me know what sort of humor you really like. I think that uh, slapstick absolutely works for me. I love the whole, um, you know, the unexpectedness of, of schadenfreude and you know, the, uh, the tragedy of befalling people in a hilarious way, right? It's one of those things where I identify with that, with that, you know, sort of accident or, you know, that loss or that tragedy in a way that, that really just tickles me because I know it's being done in a comedic way and, um, you know, it's the, the, the classic pratfall on a banana peel it, it, when it's done correctly, right? It's not one of those things where 
I'm amused by somebody being genuinely injured. It's one of those things where, you know, you fall and then you laugh about how funny it was that you just slipped on a banana peel because that's a classic pratfall. So that type of humor is just my go-to for, for, you know, how to, how to amuse someone, especially if you're, if you're five, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, if you come up to a five-year-old, you know, having a, uh, an, an accident, like in a funny accident in front of them in a, in a, you know, purposeful way will always make a five-year-old giggle. And so I love doing that. Yeah. <laughs> same to some degree. I, I mean, I, I, I think I probably like all sorts of different types of humor, but that, um, the, the slipping on the banana, I think that's why, uh, fail videos are so popular and, and it's not just like, look at this person fail, but it's like, try not to laugh at this thing. And it's not because you're laughing at the person, how silly, but I, I don't, you know, and, and sometimes I watch these fail videos and I go, ooh, that might have hurt. But it's just sort of how ridiculous people look when they're falling or doing something silly. So I like those those two. So, well, welcome to the stage, the director, Joanna and Albert. I'll put the question to you. Uh, we'll go to the director first. Has there ever been a time when stepping out of your element caused you to run around acting seemingly crazy to hilarious results? <laughs> the answer is yes. Uh, it happens to me quite often. But uh, I was thinking of the line in there, Scotty, when he was trying to get the computer to talk to him, and then he picks up the mouse to start trying to talk into the mouse, and the 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 less advanced human, you know, has to explain how to use a computer. That that right there still gets me. That moment often pops into my head uh, when I think uh, I'm going to go into a new situation with all the knowledge that I have, um, and then I find out I am incorrect in my assumptions. Ah, that's very good, because I think that will lead us into uh, some of our conversations uh, in the next episode as well. So thank you for that. Joanna, welcome to the stage. Has there been a time when stepping out of your element caused you to run around acting seemingly crazy to hilarious results? Well, I suppose when I left, uh, when I was in a place where no one spoke English. <laughs> so I went to Puerto Rico, does that count? So it was out of my element. And I was kind of running around trying to tell someone that I was passing out from the sun. I was having heat stroke and no, and everyone was just smiling at me. I was like, no, uh, something's wrong. Well, as much as I, I think that heat stroke is, is really serious, I can see that that's one of these things where people are expecting that you're having a good time. And you're probably, if, if, if I know you a little bit, uh, you're very polite. So I'm, I'm thinking that you were polite in telling them that. And uh, I, I do wonder what you would have been saying to them. Did you ever find out why they didn't understand what you were saying? They didn't speak English, and I didn't know how to say, help me, um, I'm, or I'm sick, <laughs> or doctor. Oh, <laughs> no. Uh, but somebody finally understood. Uh, yes, and that's why, may I continue with my little, uh, what a silly uh, exchange in yesterday's uh, show uh, that just struck me uh, cute. And it's Spock 
and Kirk. So Spock says, Admiral, may I ask a question? And Kirk says, Spock, don't call me Admiral. You used to call me Jim. Don't you remember Jim? And then he says, what was your question? Uh, silly, because there's like, it's just a divine exchange uh, because he, he always called him Jim. And uh, it took a little getting used to for, uh, for me anyway, uh, to hear him being referred to as Admiral. Thank you. Yeah, the reason for that um, is in the events of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Spock died. He gave his life to save the Enterprise uh, by sacrificing himself in the Warp Corps. Uh, the final scenes are of um, uh, Spock being Spock's body being jettisoned onto onto the newly formed Genesis planet. Then in Star Trek Three, the search for Spock, they return to the Genesis planet to find that Spock has been reborn by the Genesis planet, um, and then they, you know, just end up destroying, setting the the uh, Enterprise to self destruct and stealing the Klingon warbird. So the events of four pick up where three left off with dead Spock now being alive again and, you know, them being on Vulcan, uh, on the homeworld of Vulcan, of Vulcans. I think it's the planet Vulcan. Um, and uh, now he calls him, he calls him Admiral because he sort of lost something about himself. And then there was that also that scene where Bones goes to talk to Spock and says, don't you want to talk about, you know, the philosophy of, of life, death, life again. And it was, it was a really great scene because that was, you know, sort of the, the, the usual interaction that McCoy has with Spock is this, you know, he's trying to get something, he's trying to, get blood from a rock and not not succeeding right and spock is just being this incredible you know logical person so it, it was interesting to see spock sort of revert to his more um logical self but then i think the whole point of the movie was it was bookended by him going you know how do you feel and then in the middle of the movie the exchange with kirk saying uh you're talking about wiping all the humans off the planet how do you feel about do you have any feelings about that and then at the end he saved the earth and uh told you know told Sarek to tell his mother i feel fine so i think it was also about spock regaining and reconnecting with his human half wow cool thank you T, I really loved that uh, summary that you did. How do you feel? What do you feel about that? And I feel fine. Because I did notice those as well. And I'm going to think a little bit more on that because I I don't know if the writers wanted us to think more on that. But I, I think that it had a lot to do with not just Spock's journey, but there's some connection to the whole whales thing. And, you know, they they weren't necessarily saving the whales from extinction. They were having to repopulate and that they, the whales did go to extinction. So they weren't changing the past necessarily. And, 
I guess for me, even though I laughed and loved the movie, I thought, yeah, I, I'd feel fine too if I knew that the whales weren't going to go extinct. So anyway, but let's get back to the humor. Oh, yes. uh, welcome. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Speaking of the time travel, I wanted to bring up the scene where, um, where Scotty and McCoy are having the discussion about transparent aluminum and they say, well, how do we know he didn't invent the damn thing? And I thought that that was an interesting retcon there. Like you were going to, you know, this is how we got transparent aluminum and now we gave it to him. And so it's circular because the transparent aluminum that he invented was the one that he got from the future. So I just thought that was a really cool like scene. I just, it was really stuck out to me. It stuck out to yeah. me too. And as soon as I saw it or thought about it, I was like, why can't they Google it and find out if he was the one that decided, you know, he was the one that did it. If they were trying to, if it was a butterfly effect or, you know, I thought about that as well too. I was like, no, don't fuck with the future. No, don't do it. Maybe we just gave it to a, a terrorist, a domestic terrorist in some way, shape or form. But I really was thinking too deep and all of it, but I thought it was hilarious. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah. I, I, the time travel stuff always gets me and that that when that particular one being circular was interesting so uh we have a, a lot of people on stage we have albert and sean and kyle and ryan and steve and lasha now so i'll just put this question to albert and sean and then we'll move on to the next episode and then anybody who else also wants to tell us some funny stories about having hilarious results when you stepped out of your element can share that as well but sean uh, welcome back. Has there been a time when stepping out of your element caused you to run around acting seemingly crazy to hilarious results? You know, looking back in my life, I've had a lot of silly uh, things happen and acted silly, but I can't even think of an answer to your question. It's so specific. It would take me a while. Um, I do want to comment on the what Lasha commented on with the transparent aluminum. I have a problem with when they handle tr time travel. And when they said that, I thought, gee, that's a careless way to look at it. Obviously the database on the enterprise is equivalent to like a galactic um, Google, you know, in storage or Wikipedia at least. And they would be able to figure out, hey, was this the guy on earth that invented transparent aluminum or not? Otherwise we're really screwing around with the timeline and we'll change all of the future. But of course, you know, it was sort of humorous, especially when he picked up the mouse and talked into it and said computer. And um, then they had to show him that he had to put the mouse down to actually move it. And he had this, this look on his face, like, really? That's so primitive. It was hilarious. So How quaint. Right. Oh, yes, I think he did say that. You're right. But he knew just—he knew just how to mess with that thing, though. As soon as he did it, yeah, he, he did the clicks and the, he knew just what to do. So if he knew what to do, yeah. and he knew it was a keyboard. It—it it just made it funnier for me because I'm like, you don't even know what to do. Like, and how it, you... it was funny, yeah. It's how it's funny. Also, so really just... quick point. Really quick point. They didn't have the Enterprise's database. They had a Klingon bird appraised oh, database, that's true. which would not have any information about Earth or very little information about Earth. That I don't know. It had enough information to have the whale. Uh, 
yeah, right? It, it did. I would bet Spock it would have some up, human data. Well, yeah, Spock pulled up the the um the the whale information and was looking through the whales. So it had at least that much information. Yeah, if the Klingons are interested That's in true. whales, they probably know about transparent aluminum. I mean, at least it, it just may be a catalog of information from the past, like Wikipedia, that we all have in, in every Kling, I mean, every nation from Klingons to Romulans to Vulcans and all that. They may all have that same information at this point. Well, I think the answer is obvious. They were using it as as rationalization, right? Yes. They, it was just a it was just a, a throwaway sort of moment. But I thought it was hilarious. The whole scene was hilarious with you know computer computer. It's just it really it was great. Yeah, because if if that was the inventor of transparent aluminum, then yeah, somebody made that the case in the timeline at some point. It's hilarious. Can I ask y'all all a question just off the cuff? How many of you guys have Alexas and have changed their Alexas to computer besides me? I have. <laughs> we we have two Alexa units and we have two uh, Google Home devices in different Yeah, rooms. one of them Ziggy, one of them's computer. Nice. I had uh, to. I, Google doesn't have that feature yet, right? Being able to change the cute. Okay, I'm feeling a little bit like Picard and Kirk when they lose control of their crew and things I'm run amok. Sorry, <laughs> hey, hey, I No, I'm I'm like I'll I'm picturing Picard. how they're like, how the hell did this happen? What's going on hey, here? Victoria, did I ever tell you about the time I went to a um Star Trek um convention presentation and uh Probably Picard, Picard was there. Picard wait, wait, Sean, Sean. I will invite you to say that. It, please keep that in mind. Let's talk about it in the post-podcast popcorn section. Okay, okay. Well, <laughs> I, I, our ADHD has gotten way out of control. <laughs> it is funny, though, because every time that there is a show where things sort of run amok uh, for C Picard or Kirk, I always laugh because, you know, you you see everybody having a good time and and then there's the captain just going what <laughs> what's how did this happen and i was looking at the stage going oh how did this happen all these my favorite people are here up on the stage and i'm thinking how the hell am i gonna edit this thing <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, this Oh my god, I I might I will if we have time. So let's uh, let's move on. I'm just going to say this is Star Trek Sundays on Clubhouse. Our regular show is Sunday at 10 a.m. PST. To be notified of future shows, please join the club by clicking the house at the top of the room. Today we're discussing what's so funny. T, can you provide a summary of the next episode, The Outrageous Okana, to remind those who didn't get a chance to review it, what it was about? And then I have a couple of questions for you. And I'm laughing as I say that because I loved this episode. I'll talk about it after you're done your summary. And I see oh Charlotte. God. I just want to point out Charlotte's got a <laughs> gif going on here. That's how it was feeling. Oh, <laughs> Thank I, I you. Mean, this is this is the this is the time of my life right here. I, 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 if I can if I can pull it together enough to 
do this. Um, um, the, the Outrageous Akona, The Next Generation, Season 2, Episode 4, first aired on the 12th of December, 1988. In this episode, the great Akona seeks asylum aboard the Enterprise, which could go completely unnoticed, with Data summoning a comedian on the holodeck and trying to learn how to be funny. I chose this episode because it's quite literally a takedown of bad comedy, with Data learning these bad jokes and repeating them to the crew, only to have them not laugh or not or find him funny at all. In the end, he has his little android soul crushed by an audience who laughs at everything, but then discovers that he could be funny by being natural. Oh, thank you, T. Yeah, I loved this episode. This helped me figure out what humor I like uh, or why, I guess. And so I, in this section, I do want to dive in a little bit into the philosophy of humor because we, we've talked about what's so funny, but you just said what we looked at what wasn't funny. So here we see the unexpected at play right at the start. The crew is super serious about communicating with the broken down vessel, and we expect to see the captain of the stranger vessel to appear on screen to provide some insight. But what we get is his bottom. And for a long time, well, he talks to Captain Picard, who's looking at his bottom on the big screen. And this is extended long enough for us to see Picard's annoyance and feel the crew's curiosity about Captain Okona. It's telling us a bit, I guess, to expect the unexpected in this episode. And I did like Okona's uh, swagger, which along with his puffy sleeves reminded me a little bit about Jack Sparrow. And Okona's storyline is happening as a secondary storyline to Data's storyline. I don't really know which was primary and which was secondary, really. Uh, while Data is learning what is not funny, we are seeing what is funny in Akona's storyline, at least to me. And this was what I was considering brilliant writing. So, T, I'll ask you, and then we'll put it to the, the crew. Data tries so hard to learn to be funny and yet really struggles with getting the concept and amusing his friends. Have you ever told a joke only to have it bomb? Yeah, I definitely have. And the reason I it happened was because I didn't set up the the uh the situation correctly. I didn't read the room. And that's one of the things that's critical about joke telling is that you have to Make sure that your audience is receptive to the joke. And that really dives into, you know, the philosophy of humor. And there's there's a lot to talk about in that. Um, but I just remember telling a, a really off-color joke to a room that was laughing. And everybody just sort of looks at each other and, and you know, goes, okay, and moves on gracefully but i felt really dumb you know i felt that was that was one of the times that i felt like very inferior and i remember being discouraged like data was i remember having my little android soul crushed in that moment and so i really identified with the last scene where data kept on having this audience laugh at everything that he said and did 
And he realized that that wasn't humor in the same way that I realized that what I did wasn't humor. Ouch. Wow. So from that, I wonder, I don't know if you can link this, but you and I talked a little bit this morning about incongruity theory. And I wonder if now's a good time to bring that up and whether that helped explain why that bombed or not, or if that's something you want to go into a bit later. No, I think it's a good time. Um, the idea behind incongruity theory is that um, there's something that has to be dissonant in your mind such that you uh, have to collapse that cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance is where you hold two ideas that are contrary to each other, right? Like the cat is on the mat and the cat is not on the mat. These are contrary ideas and they can't coexist in your mind. So when they do, you feel this sort of unease, this tension. So there's a, there's a theory regarding this about how this developed. Um, you can imagine the early Homo sapien or, you know, even before Homo sapien uh, in his cave and he's laying down and thinking about uh, tomorrow, you know, having thoughts about his uh, family being away and should be home in a couple of days and, you know, listening to the quiet of the night. Maybe he's a little hungry thinking about that type of stuff. When all of a sudden he hears a, a rustle outside, a, a noise, and he thinks to himself, oh my goodness, a lion. So gone are the thoughts of being hungry his family tomorrow, the future. And now his priority has immediately shifted to that of uh, his, you know, I better go get my spear, right? And so his, uh, with, with these thoughts come elevated heart rate, elevated stress levels, elevated adrenaline, all kinds of biological things are happening in response here. So he gets up and he grabs his spear and he goes outside now, maybe he encounters a lion. Sure, that could happen. But maybe he encounters a rabbit. And he sees that the noise being made isn't a lion at all. It's a rabbit. Okay? So, it, this is harmless. We can go back to bed. No problem. The problem is that he still has all of this biological stress built up. Right? So, uh, you know, he has this cognitive dissonance in his head, you know, I, one part of my body is saying I need to get up and go do all this stuff. And another part of my body is, you know, another part of my mind is saying, uh, obviously it's a rabbit. You don't need to do this. So we have this cognitive dissonance and we need to de-stress and bring our mind back to thinking about tomorrow, maybe being a little bit hungry, go back to bed. So what do we do? One of the ways that we uh, deal with this is we take a couple of deep breaths. We go, ah, 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 and this sounds like uh, the beginning of what we now know as, right? And this is how humans develop the laughter response. So when a comedian tells a joke, a comedian tells a punch, or a, a, a setup, which which sets you up for a specific expectation. So he tells a joke such that you have this expectation, and then he delivers a punchline 
that differs from your expectation. It's something that you don't expect. And so suddenly you have cognitive dissonance. You have your expectation and you have the punchline and they're different. They're, they're, you know, they're uh, incongruitous and you have to collapse that cognitive dissonance. And so you do. <laughs> and now we can explain comedy. This also explains comedic timing because the comedian has to give you the setup in such a way where you can understand and create that expectation and then deliver it before you can figure out where he's going. So if he waits too long, you figure out where he's going and then he delivers the punchline and you see it coming and it's not funny anymore. This also explains why a joke that you've heard before isn't funny because you don't have cognitive dissonance. You just go straight to the punchline and now it's not funny anymore. Oh, that was great. Thank you for that. Wow. Yeah, there was... A, a lot going on there and I was going through some of the things that I watch on say YouTube and what what I find funny so obviously like there's some pranks sometimes you know where a tree you know is a guy dressed as a tree and then he kind of just steps and he surprises somebody because they're not expecting it but then they always laugh and you think why do they think that's funny they've just been scared but it's actually that relieving of, uh, oh, I don't have to worry something. The tree wasn't attacking me, right? It was just a prank. So I, I think that's really good. Um, I do watch some comedians over and over again. And, and sometimes I wonder about that because I know what they're going to say. But it is just watching the, the wonder of their timing and creativity and um, that, that I just enjoy. So then it's more of just watching a person who's crafted their art so well, I guess. I see Charlotte's been making some reactions. So I'm going to go to her because I know Charlotte is uh, a performer and a comedian and does improv as well. And uh, I've been lucky enough to share some rooms with her where we've performed together. So Charlotte, I'm going to ask you this very difficult question. Have you ever told a joke only to have it bomb? Oh, oh, have I ever? You know, I wanted to share a little bit about what you had stated earlier, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Okay? Yeah, please. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. Okay. Because I had an experience when I was, I just turned 20 and I was in my sophomore year of college. I was there on a theater and music scholarship. And so I, we had just finished Pippin. I was getting ready for the senior directed plays, which they were all one acts. And so it was a very busy time of the year. And one of the directors came up to me and said, you've got to audition for this one-woman play that I'm, I'm directing. It's Emily Dickinson and the, the Bell of Amherst. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to do that too. And oh, my gosh, when is it on? And so I went to the audition. He said, okay, it's, it's going to be on. And it was three weeks from the date that we auditioned. So I got the role of Emily Dickinson. We and I have 68 pages of dialogue to learn in three weeks. So that's a little over 10 pages a night and then putting it on while, oh man, I took on a huge, huge job. And uh, I realized after the first few days that I really got myself involved with something that was going to be quite the challenge. So anyway, I went through all the, the rehearsals and learned the dialogue and things were actually going pretty well. And then the night that I performed it, 
Uh, it was for the Theater Guild, and I actually got paid for this gig, so that was wonderful. My mother and my grandmother came to the show, and I got up and did the, the, the show, The Bell of Amherst. So as I was going through all of the dialogue, at times um, I could see pages of dialogue. That really helped me get through it because it was quite the challenge. But then I got to about halfway, and I went into a severe blank. All of my words, where I was, what I was supposed to do next, it was all gone, nothing. And I couldn't stand there with crickets chirping. I had to do something. So I knew that part of the dialogue that was coming up was where Emily says she, she's having a conversation with her cat and the, the cat takes off. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll just grab that line. I'll go in the back where the script is, back behind stage, and I did. But what I did was I went with the line, Oh, pussy, where's my pussy? Pussy, 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 pussy. <laughs> I ran to the backstage, <laughs> looked at the script, and I, I found my space. I found where I was, and that's all I needed. So I continued with pussy. Oh, there's a naughty little girl. Come here. <laughs> and so then I continued with the dialogue. I got to page like 49 in my head. Now, you know, I don't have the script in my hand. These are the actual pages I'm seeing in my head. But I get to that page 49 where the, the pussy comment was. And then I just skipped over that and went to the next part and finished the show. Now, people who knew me and knew what what had just happened for the past three weeks of learning this show, I got really good reviews. And and my my mother and my uh, grandmother asked me. They said, "How did you learn all that?" And I said, "I asked them. I said, did you catch my error?" I didn't tell anyone else this, but I could tell my mother and my grandmother. And then I told them what happened when it was the pussy thing and my grandma said i thought that was a lot she's norwegian i thought there was a lot of things you were talking about your pussy and i couldn't understand why you would want to talk about your pussy so much on the stage and i said no it was the character emily dick says yeah yeah but that's a lot for her to say it about her pussy and so anyway we sat there and we just laughed and laughed and laughed about that afterwards but that was one of those moments where i thought you know what it, it, it was, no matter what happens on stage or in life, and theater is life, it's what you do with it. And that was one of the most hilarious moments that, um, that I came through a very, very difficult time. And so I just wanted to share that. But yes, I have also had um, j jokes flop. Um, and um, <laughs> one of them was with my... Um, my brand new mother-in-law, my wife, uh, Marianne, her mother, uh, we were sitting down to eat, and my father used to say this thing in, in German um, whenever we were excusing ourselves or whether it was, um, oh, no, it was thank you. It was thank you. And, and um, she went to uh, give me some food, and I said, oh, thank you so much, donkey shit. And, I, oh, my God, I couldn't believe that just came out of there. This is not a person you swore around. But... Um, Things worked out well, and, and um, after 30 years later, Marianne and I are together, and so no worries there. But anyway, that's my share. 
Thank you so much for that. Uh, great, great story about Emily Dickinson in the play. And, and certainly there are um, times where, you know, like the donkey shit comment, we say it just out of habit, right? And then we realize the other person doesn't doesn't get it. They just think that we're saying that. And, and perhaps later we'll get into discussing why things flop as well, uh, sort of uh, digging deeper into what T had said earlier. Uh, Charlotte, did you have a follow-up comment? I saw you unmute. Yeah, if you notice in, in Star Trek, the funniest things that are said are by Data, are by Spock, because it's uncharacteristical of, of, of what we anticipate from them. And so when they come up with something humorous, it's really, really funny. And T, I just wanted to share with you, I also agree that Captain Kirk was so robotic in everything. And yeah, it was a bit off-putting. Yet it was my first series with Star Trek. So of course it's one of my favorite, but I agree with you very much on that point as well. And yet wasn't he really good in this, in this uh, movie? Well, see, the thing is, is that when, when commanding officers are in charge, and and they're full of themselves they automatically become humorous because they're portraying themselves they're becoming a caricature and and not being their their authentic selves and the crews pick up on that so they automatically become a little bit funny so steve i'm going to put this question to you have you ever told a joke only to have it bomb yeah, I've, I've, uh, I, I would say most of the jokes that I tell, um, generally they don't land, they, they bomb, or, um, even if people like, uh, I would say might get a tiny chuckle out of them, they're not really what I was hoping for, uh, in their delivery. So I, I feel very self-conscious a lot while I'm telling jokes, um, despite trying to tell them a lot. Um, I find a lot of the difficulty is the timing, especially like on Clubhouse, people uh, talk over each other really frequently. And so it's like, I, I can't get that word in. And there's oftentimes when you really do want to cut somebody off from what they're saying to get that zinger in, because that's where the timing is. And you hope for their forgiveness afterward, if they actually did like pause for a minute to hear the, the punchline and then let it land and then follow through. I, I very much relate to T where he um, he, he mentioned like he, he felt embarrassed in that moment when it really, it really might not seem like anybody else saw it as bad but him, right? I have a lot of those and they're actually uh, almost traumatic for me. And that is kind of in part why I, I kind of hunker down and double down is because there's a lot of those situations that I go... You know, I shouldn't be flashbacking over this. I shouldn't feel traumatized when nobody else cares about that embarrassment but me. I can correct it. I can acknowledge where I might have been missing something or have gone wrong. And I can do better the next time around. And so I try to just face it head on whenever I can. Thank you for that. I, you know, I appreciate your comments on that. You know, it's funny. We've shared some space and I know exactly the types of things like when you try to make a reference to something and it it's in these hard conversations. It is really hard to do it on Clubhouse, this back and forth. And only a few people might have heard what you said. And then only a few of those people might have actually got the reference, right? So that's something that 
you know, it's kind of one of these inside joke things. Like uh, even me making the art for Star Trek Sundays, I'm making art that nobody's going to get unless you've seen this movie or unless you know Star Trek, right? Thank goodness there's a lot of people who do. But when we think something's funny, to me, I think that's good enough. Now, I guess there's something else and maybe this is a gender thing. I don't know because I know that it's important for a lot of men to feel funny or to have other people find them funny. But for me, I don't really care if a joke, obviously if a joke doesn't land and it's offensive, that, that I want feedback on. But if I think something's funny or something tickles me, I am so happy being tickled that if you didn't get it, I feel bad for you. I don't, I don't ever feel that my humor is on trial. So I tell that story just to kind of invite you to join me there in being satisfied that I crack myself up, right? Like I love puns and I can't tell you how many times when I was a manager, I would make art with puns or I would say something punny to my staff and they would groan and I would laugh. Like even right now, I'm feeling like a little vibration in my chest because it was so funny. I would be like, ha like I don't care, right? I think it's funny. And it would be wordplay or something and I'd have all these like 20 somethings rolling their eyes, you know, like this woman making these silly jokes. They were basically dad jokes, right? But I didn't care because I wasn't out to impress them. If they found it funny, fine. But I'll tell you, after a while, they started smiling. After a while, they got it and they started to enjoy it. And there would be times in meetings where something would be said and they wouldn't know what the pun was, but they would know that the, it was a setup and they'd look to me and I'd smile and, of course, feed them what they wanted, right? Anyway, so... Enjoy cracking yourself up. I think that's what I'd, I'd like to leave everybody with today. Yeah, I, I, I want to move on to Ryan. I'll ask you this about the joke and then and then we'll go on to the third episode, which was also super funny and cute. So, Ryan, have you ever told a joke only to have it bomb? Uh, yeah, totally. I, I mean, I can't remember of a specific incident because I've 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 thrown a lot of gooses, you know. And uh, but it, it's just one of those things where. Maybe it wasn't the right crowd. Maybe it wasn't the right joke. Maybe it wasn't the, the, the right time. Um, but with those interactions, you sort of just sort of eat it and move on. And uh, at least I, I think that's the best way to deal with it, right? Like, oh, okay, that one was a stinker. Maybe the next one will be good. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Move on. Uh, T, did you have any comments before we moved on? No, I think I, you know, think Steve is right on, and you know, it's just I, I share your pain with regards to having that embarrassment and it being tragic. It's it's very much a trauma, so I get it. Um, but yeah, we should move on. Great, thank you. And and certainly, I wasn't trying to. Uh, minimize anybody's trauma over this because I, I have my own and that's why I appreciate people being vulnerable on these stages uh, because I think it helps all of us feel like we're not alone in that. So this is Star Trek Sundays on Clubhouse and our regular show is Sunday at 10 a.m. PST. Today we're discussing what's so funny. 
T, can you provide a summary of the next episode, The Trouble with Tribbles, to remind those who didn't get a chance to review it what it was about? And then I'll have a few questions for you. Oh, yes. The Trouble with Tribbles. Like, absolutely a classic. It was so classic that Deep Space Nine did a whole episode in which they traveled back in time and had to uh, work around <laughs> this episode. They included original clips of this episode. So they were working around the original uh, crew. It was a really funny episode. Trouble with Tribbles, the original series, season two, episode 13, first aired on the 29th of December, 1967. This is the original series, and one of my favorites. In this episode, the crew of the Enterprise finds themselves being overtaken by cuddly, furry, purring creatures called Tribbles who multiply at an exponential rate. I chose this episode because it's an absolute classic as far as episodes riddled with comedic relief, and yet I found it also offered a view of how humor used to be approached and how it contrasted with humor of today. Looking back at the humor of the 60s is is shocking there's still some things that last that's classic uh i found some things in star trek for the voyage home a little bit cringe like we don't say these words anymore right so that's interesting and yet you you could tell that in the movie it was put there for comic delivery so you might suspect what I'm going to say here, but yes, we do see the incongruence theory in this episode, but we also see this other theory. It's called the superiority theory that people talk about in the philosophy of comedy and uh, perhaps a mix of the two together happens in one of my favorite scenes. And that's the scene in which Kirk and Scotty are talking about the fight with the Klingons in the bar in this fight there were people on shore leave, both Klingons and uh, Starfleet officers, and a drunk Klingon starts to tell Chekhov that Kirk is a buffoon, basically. And he goes on and on, and Chekhov wants to beat up this Klingon, and Scotty keeps saying, no, no, no. And then when the Klingon starts to insult the Enterprise, the ship, that's when Scotty loses it. So they all get in trouble, and we know what happened in the fight. And so we know who started the fight and why. And we know that Kirk doesn't know. And so this is where this theory of superiority comes into. It's that we know something the characters don't in the scene. And we also see that Kirk expects that Scotty started the fight to protect Kirk's honor. Because Scotty's starting to tell him the story. And we know that that's not true. So there's a great dance going on in this scene that I thought was really clever and really sweet. If you're not familiar with this, I really suggest that you have a look at it because I loved the the interaction here and I thought that this actually plays into what I had talked about with UT earlier is I think in that scene we see Kirk smile and be sweet like we see him in the movie so many years later, like 20 years later. And he's not quite this uh, robotic guy in this scene. So then throughout the episode, there is this back and forth about the purpose of the Tribbles. Like, what do they do? And that it doesn't seem to matter to most who are enamored with them. They don't care. Like even Bones, who I think is, is quite logical at times, says to, to Spock, does everything have to have a practical use for you? They're nice. They're soft. They're funny. And they make a pleasant sound. 
of course, that reminded me of how we keep pets. Like, you know, why do we do that exactly? And so, you know, my question was sort of twofold. You know, why do humans, not all, but most, love having pets? And tribbles are cute and furry and sweet. So they make the perfect pet for Yahura. If you could have any animal, alive or extinct, what would you choose to have as a pet? T? Well, I hope that people are having pets because they can provide better lives for them. Um, in, in the wild, it's a rough place. My, my dog wouldn't survive. Uh, in fact, it wouldn't exist if it, you know, <laughs> if it were for the, if it were for the wild, right? Uh, so it's one of those things where I provide a, a really great relationship, a really great home, a, a safe place to always get your food. Uh, you always get your pets. You always have somebody, you know, at your side, a lap you can lay in. Um, you know, we play games and every day. And it's just one of those things where uh, I think all of my pets have a wonderful life compared to if they were, you know, even even in places where they were just neglected and ignored. So I strive for that, you know, better standard. And I hope that that, that is what people are doing with their pets. Uh, as for if I could have any pet uh, ever i'd have a pterodactyl i'd have it you know fly around and uh you know harass people and and train it to uh to go uh you know steal wallets out of people's you know uh pockets and uh and uh, fly away with them <laughs> that's the uh that's the perfect pet for me because you know steal their hats or whatever just something that uh, can fly and is looks like a dinosaur and uh can uh you know do uh, rick and morty style stealing of wallets <laughs> okay that's that's great i i love that you're making something up creating your own pet Excellent. Uh, welcome to the stage, Barsha. We'll uh, go to Io and then Barsha and then uh, sort of a popcorn style for a bit. Io, if you could have an animal, alive or extinct, what would you choose to have as a pet? Uh, probably a leopard, uh, some sort of panther, just a larger version of a, of a cat. Like right now, I'm just finishing up a walk with my cat who uh, thinks that he's, uh, he's a dog, basically. So... Uh, that's something that I've come to quite very much enjoy uh, going outside with my uh, with my feline friend here. So, just more of that for me. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Io. I I also had a cat who enjoyed being on the lead. So we would go for walks around the neighborhood. Uh, she she just loved it. She felt more secure. And if if the lead dropped or something, she would just stop until I picked it up. So. Well, Barsha, welcome to Star Trek Sundays. Uh, really good to have you. I know that we've shared some spaces together and you do a great room on Thursdays on Name That Tune or Claim It and Name It. I love that that room. If you could have an animal, alive or extinct, what would you choose to have as a pet? First, may I talk about that episode, Trouble with Trouble? Oh, yes, please, please. <laughs> First of all, I never missed a Star Trek as a child. I was born in 1959. So when these episodes came on, the old Star Trek, I know everybody watches all the new Star Trek stuff. I couldn't do it. I was so attached to the characters of the original one that I could I could never move forward. I couldn't let myself move forward to anybody else playing the other characters. I, I just couldn't do it. 
And to the point, I, I, I mean, anyway, I don't mean to take up, I just got on the stage, but anyway, to the point where the empath, the episode, the empath, I don't know if you guys have reviewed it, but as a child, I remembered the theme of the empath when she touches the people's cut on the forehead and it goes to her and then it goes away. Is everybody familiar with that episode? Well, anyway, um, I know the music to that episode because I mean, I have gone so crazy as to never forget it from my childhood. Do, 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 do. That's what they played when she healed the people. Okay. Anyway, Trouble with Tribbles. I loved because they also made that cute little sound, you know, and they were all different colors and I loved it. And I still say that I don't think about owning, I, I, you know, something came to me that if I knew how to take care of it and if it was feasible, I might like to have an elephant. I might, I might like to have an elephant because elephants are really smart. And the fact that they do everything with that trunk is insane to me. Eat, smell, touch, everything just in that one thing and that, you know, there's something about it. I don't, I've never thought about this in my entire life until you asked the question, because I love my dogs and I have endless amounts of dogs that I've rescued from endless amounts of shelters, but I might want to have an elephant if it was the right situation. I'm fascinated with elephants. Okay. That's it. Thank you, Barsha. That's great. You've re you've reminded me. I love elephants too, but I'd want them to be smaller, like maybe the size of like a baby yes. elephant. It's like but that house a... hippo. It's like that house well, hippo video. I was gonna say Io, because I think it's a Canadian thing. I think it was a Canadian ad yep. or something. I don't know if if the Americans have seen it, but there's you've got to look on YouTube for house hippo because there was an ad that talked about the house hippo, and it was this tiny little hippo that you could have in your house, and it's just sort of relatively famous here in our tiny country. So have a look for the house hippo afterwards. But yeah, if I could have an elephant the size of a baby elephant, that's still quite big, but it's pretty cute. Yeah, that would yeah, be great. Like just so, I, it only happened because I saw this incredible video. One guy stood in front of the elephant's cage and he played a drum and then the elephant took his trunk and started banging on the drum. I was like, really? They're that smart? Oh, my God. So I want to continue this question with everybody because I'm always curious about this. And then there was another question that I'm going to put out now, but we're going to answer it after we do a little bit of housekeeping. Think about this because I'm going to go back one episode to the episode Okana, the end of Data's attempt with Guinan to learn about comedy. Guinan tells Data, being able to make people laugh or being able to laugh is not the end all and be all of being human. And Data responds, no, but there is nothing more uniquely human. It's supposed to be quite deep. But that got me thinking, is being able to laugh or being able to make people laugh uniquely human? I, I don't think so. We laugh and mostly feel that it's with our pets quite often. And there's sometimes where I think I can see, even in dogs and cats, humor. But I've also seen primates really love humor and throw themselves back as if enjoying a big guffaw, right? When they see magic and stuff, sometimes they're shocked, but then they, they seem to get it. There seems to be this connection. So I wanted to ask you guys if you could think of examples of laughter and humor that you've seen outside the human species. But 
before we answer those questions, I wanted to invite T to tell us what we have coming up next. Yes, coming up here, we have on the 6th of November, Resistance is Futile, Part 2, The Borg Coming Back. Uh, starting with the best of both worlds, that's TNG, uh, in which the Borg begin an invasion of Federation space much sooner than was expected. With the Enterprise unable to affect them, the Borg cap capture Captain Picard and turn him into one of their own, Lacutus, followed by Scorpion from Voyager. Uh, I don't think we've done Voyager yet. Upon entering Borg space, Voyager encounters an alien race even more powerful than the Borg, bent on destroying all life in the galaxy, leading Captain Janeway to enter into the alliance with the Borg in order to defeat them. Followed by I, Borg. Uh, this is from TNG. The discovery of an injured adolescent Borg brings, this, brings to the surface hard feelings for both Captain Picard and Guinan, for what the Borg Collective have done to them. Matters are complicated when plans to use the young Borg to destroy his people are halted when it is discovered that the Borg has become an individual. So after that, on the 13th of November, we have Peace Through Music. This is actually a topic that's explored fairly often, starting with Q&A, uh, followed by Innocence and Lessons, after that, we have on the 20th of November, The Trouble with Transporters, with the really great episode, Tuvix, uh, Realm of Fear, and Second Chances. After that is Thanksgiving. We have no show that week, but followed in following that on the 4th of December is Spies and Their Lies, with the Enterprise incident, The Face of the Enemy, and Our Man Bashir. Thank you for that. I really, I really appreciate you running through all those things because I, I think these are going to be really great episodes. And sometimes when I hear you uh, say this and we talk about the end of season one, it kind of surprises me because we have so much more <laughs> to talk about. These things create the next season as we go through it. So we still have a few people on stage, which is great because I want to dig into this a little bit. So if anybody heard the last question about what pet you would have. I want to change I mean, my answer to Cuddlefish or Octopus. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So How the, are you going to have the, an There's a project octopus. that I'm currently involved in that's kind of trying to map human emotions and kind of adult inventories to a space of abstract colors and textures and geometries. And uh, we're finding a lot of inspiration from Octopi. And it is so fascinating Octopoda. that they communicate like they're feeling like, you know, how your hair, uh, uh, like uh, you get goosebumps and your hair stands on its on its ends as it were that's like you know that is amplified so much more with so much more detail and almost more information from something like an octopus uh one of my favorite ones is watching an octopus uh, dream so there's like a uh, footage that you can look up uh, on youtube it's just octopus sleeping dreaming and uh, it looks wild so there's just so much that's going on on the inside that we communicate so little on the outside because it's dangerous to communicate that much. But for some reason, this uh, snail slug type creature that lost its shell millions of years ago uh, is super social and super curious, uh, but also super delicious. So <laughs> not to... Uh, oh, my God. 
There's a great documentary yeah. on that. The, my my octopus friend. Please watch it. Yes. It's amazing. Yes. Uh, well, thanks for that. That's that's really interesting. And and shout out to the the film, the documentary as well. Check that out for sure. So I, I am curious. Uh, we'll just move into sort of a, a little bit more popcorn style. And I'm just going to invite Gala up. Uh, welcome to the stage, Gala. And Christy, if you'd like to come up. Uh, we missed you earlier. So the, the question I have, can you think of examples of laughter and humor that you've seen outside the human species? So I want to throw it to T first. Go ahead, yeah, T. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, first of all, I wanted to say that I love that the inmates have been running the asylum today. <laughs> That's fantastic. Isn't it? It's, a, it's been lots it's, of fun. Yeah. It's been tons of fun. I fucking love it. It's just great. So keep it up, guys. Just keep doing, keep being you because this is great. Um, yes, uh, you. I think you see exactly what I was describing in other species a lot, actually. Apes are a good example. Uh, elephants uh, have you know, a, a grieving process where they, you know, exhibit this, this sort of cognitive dissonance of they want this elephant to still be alive, but he's dead. They have to go through a process. And uh, you see uh, dogs and cats do this, you know, with purring and stuff uh, or, um, you know, being surprised with, you know, you see like animals uh, seeing magic tricks and being like, what the heck happened? Right. Uh, there, there's all kinds of examples of this all over the place. Uh, so, yes, I think that uh, animals also experience cognitive dissonance and then they have to cope with that cognitive dissonance. And when they do, uh, you see not not exactly ha ha ha, but something very like it, which is this need for that stress relief and collapsing that cognitive dissonance and it, it definitely occurs so i think it's fascinating to watch thank you anybody else have any thoughts on that examples i, I will say with dogs it's kind of counterintuitive but whenever dogs kind of get super excited and their equivalent of a laugh is in some instances not all not all breeds of dogs but they sneeze and so it looks like they're just uh, having a, a sneeze fest, but they're actually that's their equivalent of their laugh. Like when my dog does a, will like trick me in some way or something, it'll like <laughs> do that sort of thing. And I'm like, oh wait, I understand. Because at first I was like, wait, why are you sneezing? Are you okay? Do I do we need to go to the vet? And uh, in discussion with other people, that's how some people at least interpret that. So. Dogs definitely have a sense of humor, and uh, they definitely uh, like being tricked. Like uh, the dog will be like, oh, you got me again. Oh, ho, ho. and I feel like they have that kind of internal voice uh, just by virtue of their position in relation to our species. They tend to play a subordinate role, but in that way, they're like a supporting character in an Oscar movie, and they're always the punchline or laughing at whatever. And I love the way Bill Burr describes it when he's sitting on the couch, the comedian Bill Burr, uh, he does this bit about sitting on the couch and having his uh, dog next to him and he's watching the game and in the game it's not going his way and he's getting upset and like yelling at the TV and the dog is getting amped up as well and like, like fucking up the toy or like just really being all awkward in the same way that Bill Burr is and so in that way I think not only laughter but they probably embody a lot of our emotions that probably aren't native to them 
but nevertheless, they can encode or at least process to some extent. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, dogs are, and it can be species dependent, highly intelligent animals. Uh, they are very trainable. You can you can get my dog is bugging me right now. You can give them um, training such that they understand um, full full sentences, right? So uh, you can expose them to this idea of first of all uh, object persistence, uh, showing them that you know when you put a ball underneath three cups and then you move the cups around, that when you take up the cup. Um, that you know doesn't have the that, that has the ball underneath it the ball stays with the cup and that's object persistence right and so you can teach them this idea such that they can you know follow the cup and then tell you at the end of your little you know cup and ball game where the ball is underneath the cup and they're very sophisticated with this you can tell them you know what keys are you can tell them the what a what a location is and tell them to go to that location you can tell them what a person is and tell them to you know go to that person you can then put all of this together into a complete sentence say go get the keys from the dresser in the bedroom and they will parse this with enough training with enough correct exposure to this and i don't think that this is limited to dogs in the slightest we have examples of uh, octopus doing incredibly scary, intelligent things like climbing out of their tanks, and well, like the, every day, uh, a researcher a researcher would play with a uh, uh, play with a toy with an octopus. And one day, you know, that researcher didn't get it. She she was down the hall, and the octopus literally crawled out of its tank, grabbed the toy, slid itself down the hallway, and threw the toy at the researcher. And, and I'm and I'm reading on this, and I'm going, oh, this is a this is an internet, you know, story. This is like, you know, no, this is real. This actually happened, and I couldn't believe it until I really did my research into it. it turns out this is a real story, and I just I was blown away at just how intelligent octopus are. Uh, they they may be the next intelligent species on the planet. Uh, next to humans, and they certainly have really cool tricks of biology that they can do. Yeah, definitely. The, yeah. the topology of the octopus brain or cephalopods in general have differently shaped brains or the geometry or how it's connected. Think of a, a mug and then think of a mug with kind of a, a little handle, a little loop. Uh, those are topologically different surfaces. One is isomorphic to a sphere, the other is isomorphic uh, to a donut, for example, but the donut brain in the instance of the octopus is quite fascinating because it might allow more perpendicular thought uh, in the way that I think about kind of brain waves traveling across the surface. Uh, it might be easier for them to become, because they have what, three hearts, um, uh, eight brains plus a central brain, and then, uh, uh, you know, they also have a beak, which is kind of weird, but haha. Um, but in general, the, the neuroscience of an octopus gets even crazier because their eyes don't have color, uh, the ability to detect color. They apparently do it through chromatic aberration. So I'm like, what the? So even the way that they perceive color is different. So I wonder what the quality of color for an octopus would be 
and what that might mean in terms of how they interpret our understanding or our actions. Could their sense of color be so much different? Because if they don't see color, yet they can turn their skin into whatever colors are around them and whatever patterns exist, it's just mind-blowing. So um, anyways, that's all for me. Thanks, Ayo. That actually leads me into, uh, it builds up what I was going to say to T about the dogs. Um, I've seen people play that cup game with dogs. And then if you hold, you squeeze the cup that has the ball, and they think that the ball is going to be there, and you lift the cup, and it looks like the ball isn't there, the sleight of hand. They don't know that yet, but some get worried, but some seem to get that you've done something they don't know what it is but they look at you like are you seeing this and it 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 does lead into that humor but now i'm wondering i'd like to see the cup game with the octopuses <laughs> so i that that's going to be what i'm going to have to look up this afternoon yeah, i guess actually that's um, a great idea for a study so i'm going to actually tweet out that we're going to send out this little recording here of us talking about this but yo shout out to all the octopus researchers play the cup game with the octopus yeah that's right yeah i I'd, I'd really like to see that um so we have gella and christy on the stage uh christy what did you think of these episodes just generally you um were at the at the watch party yesterday so i'll just ask your general impressions and then and then we'll get gella's thoughts on the the room as well yeah i um well, i really enjoyed the episodes i think um i i didn't really like the the data one at all but that was another thing or, it was interesting to me to uh, watch to watch the data one again because I, I I remember when I watched it the very first time I had ever seen it and I was like yeah and then when I watched it this time I was still like yeah okay don't like it <laughs> but um, well go ahead. if you don't yeah. mind I just want to know like what it was so it I do encourage you when I get the um, this edited and up or you can listen to the replay because we did talk about uh what what's not funny during that episode and so i just i'm curious if you if you know what it was that you didn't like and and maybe that's something we can examine here because we are just talking about what's so funny what's not funny what tickles well, us yeah i mean i did i just did not like the humor in the episode because most of it I found was not funny at all. And I just didn't. And and I, in a way, I don't know, I think I didn't like that Data was even trying to be funny. Because he's naturally funny every once in a while with some of the stuff he says, which came across. Um, but then him like trying to be funny. I don't know. I think that was part of what I didn't like. It just, I just really didn't like the humor in that episode at all. And I didn't think it was funny. And I didn't even care for the, the episode, the, the framing episode around it, which was the, the whole Rafe, or I forgot, I, I can't, I can't say the word right. Um, the rake, there we go. <laughs> the rake of the, uh, the commander of the ship that came over and, and ended up having all these miscommunications happening, which is another form of humor for some people, but I don't find that very funny either. So, 
so yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's enough of a good answer to explain, but that's that's how I feel is that I just didn't like it. Um, yeah, so, that's great. And then, yeah. And then the uh, well, the trouble with troubles I've always thought was awesome, and um, and again, I I really love the Deep Space Nine take on it as well because there's another episode with the Deep Space Nine um, with the trouble with troubles, and I think that because I enjoyed the Deep Space Nine episode so much that I ended up really liking the original episode even more. Um, because I just think it's really funny. and th But there are things about it that are a little off-putting just because it's from the 60s and it was a different time. And some of the things that they find are funny, I don't necessarily find are funny. But but many of it really was. Um, but like for an example, when they got into the fight, like, and they spent a lot of time on the fight, which I also thought was bizarre and silly. Um, but I, I thought that the fight was really stupid. Like it was stupid to get into a fight just because somebody was insulting somebody else because that's the way I grew up. But I do think that that was a different time. And I don't think that that was such a quote unquote stupid reason when, um, you're looking at the time, um, that it was made because I have a feeling that it was a lot more like insulting someone's honor was was more of a big deal, I think, than, and, and I'm getting all over the place now with this because insulting someone's honor, I mean, is a big deal, yes, but I don't think that you should necessarily have physical blows over it. So anyway, um, that was I that think was a lot of people thought. in that era did that with the Russians, for example. There was a lot of confrontations where there was very tense discussions about like socialism and capitalism and what communism has. Uh, or what role communism has going forward because Star Trek is almost like <clears throat> capitalism and one two three oh sorry I slipped oh and we figured out everything and it's communism now because it removes a lot of those things so I think from a perspective it was very controversial because it showed kind of like this hey look there's people fighting over these arbitrary things Maybe you're doing some of that in your life. And I feel like there was a lot of messaging like that in the original series and Next Generation. Like those two shows really tried to capture the, uh, the problems of that era. So if you go back and look at what the headlines were around the times of the episodes, I actually watched like all uh, original series and Next Generation recently with my wife who had never seen it. And so as you could imagine, if you think I have a lot to say now, Imagine just sitting down with me uh, and we can turn a 40-minute episode into a five-hour thing where there could be so much additional content. Um, but the point is that it was fascinating to see the headlines of the era and how they relate to each episode that I think from, from a perspective of wanting to be part of a global conversation, that's something that's always been amazing about Star Trek. So I, I don't know if that's something that you folks cover, but I feel like that's one of those things right now, if you watched uh, Strange New Worlds, it tried to do that. Or the Orville also tried to do that, right? But they flipped it and made that entire other species that was male only. So there's a lot of ways to have these uh, commentaries, but thanks, sorry. Sorry to jump in, it was just too exciting. No, I, I agree <laughs> with you, Io, and I think that it's important to remember that at the start of this Star Trek movie that we watched at the start, uh, The Voyage Home, the opening uh, scene was a message that said, 
the makers of this film would like to dedicate the makers of this film would like to dedicate it to the crew of uh the spaceships the spaceship challenger uh and whose spirit will live on into the 23rd century and beyond so with this in mind they had you know put this in there because just the year prior 1985 this had happened literally during their filming and the whole message that they were tackling was you know save the whales and the importance of it and you know what happens when you know species go extinct now they had a little bit of a spin on that right the uh, big probe comes and kills you but the but you know i think that there's other people who have tackled this uh douglas adams from hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy gave us last chance to see uh talking about the species that he went uh, and tried to find that are about to go extinct and and seeing them and then uh i forget his name went back like 15 20 years later whatever it was after douglas adams death and went back and tried to find them again uh as a tribute to douglas adams and last chance to see so if you can you know if you want to read the book by douglas adams last chance to see it's an amazing book uh and if you're into you know watching video uh stephen fry that's who it was stephen fry um go look up stephen fry last chance to see and his tribute to douglas adams because uh this is a, a problem in our world where we are destroying the ecology and that's having long-term effects on our environment that are going to impact everything and everyone uh, thank you t and and thank you io yeah that, that's heavy stuff for sure and and i agree io that that they were speaking to the elephant in the room at the time that the the things were being filmed that the episodes and films were being uh created but i do want to go back to christie's comment about the fight because it did seem relatively out of place we were talking about tribbles and you know a, a, a few things and and so I, of course, knew what triples were. I, I kind of knew the gist of these triples take over the, the ship. You know, I had seen it as a kid, but I didn't. I'm seeing a, a lot of these things with a very new eyes. Sometimes I'm seeing them for the very first time, but often even with this, it feels like the first time. But one of the things we talked about earlier was my favorite scene, I would think, in this episode is between Scotty and Kirk. And I think it's really funny. Maybe others don't think it's as funny as I do. But the whole fight was a setup for that scene. It was this really long setup of, okay, so you've got Scotty who's telling Chekhov, no, no, just like you, Christy, no, we don't have to fight for this, right? Like, just let it go. It's not worth it. And then what is the unexpected thing, which is what makes us laugh in that scene is that Scotty doesn't think it's worth fighting over the honor of Kirk, but he thinks it's fighting over the honor of the ship, right? So then the fight goes on. It's very kind of 60s. You know, there's one scene where uh, I think Chekhov is punching the the stomach of a Klingon and he's just sitting, standing there and it's like a four-year-old punching his dad. It's It's kind of funny. So it goes on and it's a setup so that Kirk can go, well, who started this? Who started this? Who started this? And it it's Scotty who started it, 
who was tasked with making sure there was no issue. Right. So that's also this other thing. We didn't expect that from Scotty because he was told not to do this thing. And so then in this scene between Scotty and Kirk, we have Kirk asking what happened and Scotty starts telling him, well, they were insulting you. And so Kirk is assuming that that's why the fight started. And he goes, well, and you know, that, so that's when you threw the punch and he goes, well, no, sir. No, I didn't think it was worth doing that. And then he finally says, I did it for the ship. Right. I, and, and, and Kirk is now laughing and kind of like, oh, so you did oh, it. So, for so the, the ship, ship is me, more important right? than me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I, I just, I loved this scene so much. And then Scotty gets disciplined and now he's got to stay in his quarters and he's happy about it because now he gets to play with his games. He's got some collection of something going on, right? That he was more interested in than taking shore leave, but he was forced to take shore leave. So this whole thing is circular. And I find this one little storyline absolutely brilliant. And the more I think about it, the more brilliant I think it is. But it it takes some following to then get the joke so I can understand why some people wouldn't get it or they wouldn't see that that scene um, between Kirk and Scotty was was brilliant. But but again, I mean, this was one of the questions that I had in my notes was, what's funny to you, right? Like, I want to put that to the, to the stage. What's funny to you? Because I like wordplay and gameplay and, and I don't mind a really long joke for a payoff. Right. And he that's what I think this Enterprise is. A garbage scope. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But yeah. Thank you, Gella. In all of TV. So Gella knows this, um, this episode clearly. Um, I, I like your contribution on this Gella. And then, and then maybe we can talk about what we all think is, is funny. Like what, what hits you the most, but, but Gella, welcome to the stage and welcome to Star Trek Sundays. Hi. Yeah. I'm totally new here. So um, obviously I, haven't watched what you've watched, but I gather that you're talking about Trouble with Tribbles and Outrageous Mr. Anoko. That is correct. Oh, cool. So, oh, I think it's, um, I, it's, sorry, I'm new to all of this too uh, in some way. It's Akona. Yeah, yeah. Akona, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I sometimes I feel like I'm um, one of the very few um, Star Trek fans who actually loves trouble with tribbles because it's you know famously one of those grown episodes that that serious star trek fans don't really like but you know it's been one of my favorites since i was a kid and um oh my god there's so many hilarious moments in it they're just you know it's it's comedy gold from beginning to end i mean you know when uh uh kirk comes and he says you know the, the, what's in the storage bins you know quadro triticale the quadro triticale quadro triticale the what the what and the um and his uh chickens a sick chicken sandwich and coffee with that that has the the that's infested with tribbles and and then the the fight scene where you've got you know all all this stuff happening and then cyrano jones has the the two drinks that he's like you know navigating his way through the through the through the mess hall and it's just you know i mean it's it's not it's not like fantastic Trek, but it's fantastic comedy. And like, you know, sometimes fantastic comedy is, is fantastic Trek. And um, it's just, it's just one of my favorite, favorite things ever in the world. I, I, I agree. 
I have to say, I love, first of all, I need to say overall, one of the reasons that I find Star Trek in general so funny. And because the whole show is ironic. It's based on irony because, and then over the years, I have never forgotten the irony and the the fact that that they have to make Captain Kirk fall in love with a woman every episode is <laughs> it is so inherently hysterical to me to perpetuate his maleness and his virility and so it is his it's always been even since high school hysterically funny to me and but it also turned me on number 2 right and and i'm a lesbian okay and number three uh, because i was imagining all these different species of women on planets you know but when the trouble with trouble i do have to say that i understand what gella just said this that diehard star trek fans because maybe everybody's just watching it for the science fiction part of it uh and the writer's minds that came up with these things that like i love the parallel universe one i know you'll probably watch it another time or maybe you already have and that gets you thinking. But still, there always has to be a love interest and a parting of ways. The whole show is ironic. It's hysterical. Anyway, I just had to put my two cents in there. Thank you, both Gela and Barsha. Yeah, th that those are great shares. Uh, Gela, I just clipped what you said about it not being great Star Trek, but being great comedy like that. Brilliant, brilliant. I'm going to be using that and I will credit to you, but that was just like Yay. really well said, really well said. Um, it, we get a lot of people on these stages saying some really brilliant things. So thank you guys for contributing. Um, I I will say that, uh, so I, as I said earlier, I watch this on TV with the sound plugged in. So my husband works from home. So he's actually seeing some of this stuff. We were watching Trouble with Tribbles and when Kirk was opening the hatch and all the triples fell out and then he crawls out of it and he's sitting there among all these triples, some of them dead. And they just keep and, coming. But it's not that they're coming all at one time. One or two are thrown and hitting his head. Someone is tossing these and aiming them for his head because they're not falling from anywhere. So even without the sound, my husband's laughing and he's like, oh, my God, that's a crew person. And he said, I, I want it to be Uhura, he said, who's tossing these dribbles at his head, like aiming them like soccer balls. And so, you know, you know, it's good when somebody doesn't even know what's happening and they can just see the the physical comedy that's going on there. Right. Anybody else got anything to say on that? Yeah, I chose this episode very carefully. And I think that, I think that Gela absolutely identified it. There are hardcore Star Trek fans out there who don't like this episode. They feel that it's garish and, you know, slapstick instead of the seriousness of the usual space battles and bridge work that they're trying to puzzle through. Um, I'm in that boat. I'm someone who doesn't find this episode funny at all but i chose it knowing that people absolutely find it hilarious and i know there's just different senses of humor i know it's just how people are but i absolutely wanted to ask the question what's so funny 
And this is why I am asking the question and I've just gotten these great answers from from Gela and Barsha about what's so funny. And I I get it that I mean, for me, having a friend in the room who uh, is laughing at something, that's that's a humor multiplier. And so maybe if I was, you know, watching this episode and I had you next to me on the couch, I bet I'd be laughing hysterically with you because that's the type of thing that I find funny. And I'm just, when I watch this, I'm just not getting it because I'm in a different mindset of Star Trek being serious and it's not in this episode. So I'm glad I chose this episode. I'm glad I had you here to share. Your shares were awesome. I just read in Wikipedia, T, that they had to get a waiver from Robert Heinlein for this episode. Is that true? Because it was based on something previously written. I had no idea. I'm looking at Wikipedia right now. And that's so interesting to me. It says the short story Pigs is Pigs by Ellis Parker Butler inspired the episode, but there are strong similarities to sections of the novel, The Rolling Stones, and that that led the producers to seek a waiver from Robert Heinlein. I just think that's so, maybe that's why it's so, so different from all the other ones. I don't know. It very well could be. I mean, there were a couple episodes which were outliers, you know, I, I feel like, you know, people know the Nomad episode, they know the, you know, the Khan episode, and they know, um, yeah, the, they know the Triples episode, right? So I think that there's there's certain ones that stand out for, for good reason. But yeah, it's interesting. I had no idea about that. I have to look, I have to research that more. And thank you for, for telling me. Oh my gosh, I want to get back to the part about the mindset because I had not thought about it at all in that way. And it's totally true that depending on what mindset you're in, um, if you are expecting something and you're disappointed because you don't get what you're expecting, then that tends to add into what it is that you do or don't like. And that makes me realize that there's probably lots of shows that I didn't like because I was expecting something specific or not really major specific, but a little bit so that to the point where I'm actually, I think I might try, except that I have plenty of things to do and I don't need to be watching extra shows, <laughs> but I might try watching them again just because I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. And that's totally true. Like if you are in a different mindset, then you're not going to necessarily like something and it may not even have anything to do with the thing because that's another thing i'm learning so much is that your mindset really makes a difference as to what you think about things and um i don't know I, this, that's just amazing to me and thank you so much for sharing that perspective you know this reminds me of um when uh, the episode of buffy the vampire slayer the body came out where um buffy's mother dies um I have a friend, Gordon, he, you know, all, all of my friends were saying that this was, you know, really powerful episode. My friend Gordon was like, I hated this episode because it wasn't like, you know, the fun monster thing that I expect every week. And, you know, there are those of us who are, you know, we we love the Buffyverse for all of its complexity. Um, and here's my friend who's, you know, just looking for a, uh, a monster-based escape every week. He doesn't want to deal with serious things. And like, you know, I was shocked. Like, how could you not 
loved this episode, but he was coming from a completely different place. It's really interesting. Well, I think that's, uh, yeah, this, this conversation is perfect about what you expect. And, and I think that that reminds me about why we do these intentional watches, right? As I am reviewing shows that I've seen before, but looking at them through a lens of calculus of war or no-win situations. I see them differently because I'm looking for different things. And perhaps the reason why I enjoyed all of these shows so much was I was looking for the humor, right? So I was looking for those things that I recognize as being humorous. It's really interesting. I mean, I often look for humor, so I do find some Star Trek humorous when it's not supposed to be so obvious. Like Christy was saying, you know, Data can be quite funny. And even we talked about in one of them when Data was feeling anxious and Picard says, turn your emotion chip off, right? It's funny because he's got emotion and he's not supposed to have emotion and now he's going to turn it off and we can't turn off our emotions. So so that tickles us a little bit because of all those those layers to it. I didn't even get into how awesome the head pieces were in the Voyage Home, the movie, when they were in the trial or the jury and how they were all the aliens, but they were all wearing these giant, almost uh, mascot-like headpieces that I just... I. I absolutely loved. And uh, perhaps we can focus on on aliens in the next season and just some of the creativity that the writers and the, the costumers, I guess, would uh, contribute to that. You wait for the fashion show. <laughs> oh, on, great, great. On the 11th of December, uh, we have, did you see what they're wearing? So you're going you're gonna to see some things here. There's, there's costumes. Yeah, so I want everybody to know that you should not buy any holiday gear until you watch the episodes and come to the show because you might get some inspiration. I know I've been getting some inspiration from some of these these shows as well, and I can't wait to get myself a Ferengi jacket at some point. But we've been going now for a couple of hours, so I'm going to wrap up the room. So this has been Star Trek Sundays. We're here every Sunday at 10 a.m. PST on Clubhouse. So thank you all for coming, and I hope you have a great afternoon. Thank you so much, everyone. Awesome room. This has been amazing, funny, and I love that the crew just put on uniforms and started running the whole ship. So hope to see you next week and see you in the hallways. Incidentally, what cracks me up is Worf. That's it. Please take my Worf. <laughs> Live long and prosper. <laughs>